It is Monday, June 13th, 2022. We hope you have had a fabulous weekend, got lots of great stuff done, had some fun in there. All your honeydew list is complete. This is New Mexico in Focus, the podcast, and I am your host, Kevin McDonald, executive producer here at New Mexico PBS. We are back with a whole lot of new content for you. And good news for those of you that burned out on elections after last week. We have none of that in this episode. But if that is something you're after, our most recent episode was jam-packed with a breakdown of the primaries, a preview of the general, and just an overall discussion about the state of democracy today. So really great listen, but we understand some people have had enough and we still have the general election to go. So there's going to be plenty more of that coming up. And I wish it was better news, but what we're going to talk about here to kick off this podcast is once again about the drought. We're now over 70 days without any substantive rain in Albuquerque, and the entire state is in massive drought conditions. And uh, there was recently a, a meeting of the Middle Rio Grande Conservancy District, and this is the group that is in charge of Um, distributing water to farmers along the middle Rio Grande and ranchers and the outlook is bleak to say the least we're talking about the possibility that there is no more water available without rain for farmers uh, to release into their fields uh, by as early as this week at the end of this week that is how crazy it is and you know we're not talking about being conservative about the water that's to be released it's that if there's not water being released that is because there is absolutely no more water available to release and there's a lot of reasons for that that go beyond the drought too and so we wanted to explain all of that to you and talk about what folks are doing to try to deal with that so we have an engineer from the Middle Rio Grande Conservancy District, Jason Kasuga. He recently joined our land correspondent, Laura Paskis, to dive into all of this. We brought you some of this interview on our broadcast Friday night on NMPBS. We're going to bring it all to you here because it's important information. It's going to be frustrating to a lot of people. Uh, and it also should not come as a surprise to any of us that we are in this situation Uh, But there is good news on this as well that you will hear about what we can hopefully do to not just survive, but as Jason mentions, thrive. But it is definitely going to take us all working together and pulling in the same direction. So without further ado, let me send it over to Laura Paskus from Arland. Jason Kasuga, thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Laura. Appreciate the opportunity. So um, we're talking right now the second week in June, still early June. How do things look for water supplies on the middle Rio Grande right now? Yeah, Laura, that's a tough question. And I wish I had better news, but it's it's not looking very good. Um, as we uh, were ending, as we began May, uh, we had quite a bit of water. Um, spring runoff was coming down. Uh, but I, what, what I don't think folks realize is it was coming down early. Uh, which meant that it was going to end early and we're seeing that process of um, the amount of native water that we have available to us in the middle rio grande coming to an end and the middle rio grande conservancy district this week started um, or uh, late last week started release of our san juan chama water to augment native flow which is um, very early on 
when we would normally have to start doing that. So I would say the water situation, unfortunately, is, is looking pr pretty bleak. So what can farmers expect, do you think, in the coming weeks? So we're going to just face generally a downward trend on the amount of water that we can divert uh, to the point where uh, we won't divert anything else. Uh, we're going to reach a point in time where um, water delivery to non-Pueblo farmers will kick in and we'll only be delivering what we call prior and paramount water uh, to, to uh, um, tribal communities. And uh, short of getting rain, the amount of water that um, non-tribal farmers can expect is going to be very little, and in some cases, none. So. MRGCD held a special meeting at the end of May, and I heard you say in that meeting multiple times that if irrigation deliveries are stopped in the coming weeks, that doesn't mean that the district has ended the irrigation season. It means that there's no water. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, so uh, oftentimes, I think, uh, when we're talking in our board meetings, people um, get this idea that we at the MRGCD are literally turning off the faucet, if you will. And in this instance, we are not. MRGCD will be open for business, and if we have water to route and move um, to farmers, we will do that. The problem is, is we are just running out of the precious resource that we route to farmers. And so without rain, I expect maybe as early as the 15th of this month um, to, to have very little to no water um, to divert and to deliver to um, our non-Pueblo agricultural community right now uh, and that will stay that way until we get rain and if we get rain and if we get a substantial amount of rain where we can divert that and route it to farmers we will do that uh, so in that sense we are open for business we just don't have the resource uh, to deliver to to folks so I'm sure that I, I know that farmers in the district uh, understand this but I just kind of wanted to lay out for, for the audience, like the Rio Grande isn't necessarily like just a naturally flowing river anymore. There's a series of reservoirs and diversions and, and the water moves from place to place and different, um, different states, different entities have different water rights that can be held in different reservoirs. Where does the MRGCD store its water and what's the status of, of that stored water right now? So Laura, historically, MRGC has stored its water at Elvado Dam. Um, Elvado Dam is owned and operated uh, by the Bureau of Reclamation, and uh, MRGCD is the um, non-federal um, partner with Reclamation with Elvado. We pay O&M for it, but the Bureau of Reclamation manages it and does all the operations. And uh, Elvado Dam is currently going through a rehabilitation under the Bureau of Reclamation Safety of Dam prog Program. And so it is not available to us um, to store native water. And so with, without having the ability to store water, we, we truly are what we call a run of the river system. We are beholden to what um, is produced in the upper elevations from a snowpack standpoint or from the amount of rain that we get. And uh, we have no really ability to supplement that um, through native storage. One of the other things I think is worth mentioning there is that New Mexico is um, currently in debt under the Rio Grande Compact, uh, which also limits our ability to store um, and would limit our ability to store even if Elvado was functioning. And so, yeah, we just face a almost a perfect storm, extreme drought, 
infrastructure that has to be fixed and then a, the debt under the Rio Grande Compact affecting this, the Middle Valley. I mean, it's all coming to a head at one time. So we've seen the river in steady decline for decades, and we've seen temperatures rising for decades. Um, it feels to me like this year shouldn't be a huge surprise to people, um, and, yet, and, and yet it feels like a crisis. Do you know like, how are farmers planning to adapt to this year? Or I think it's different across the board. I think you have seen some of the farming community adapt um, and adapt uh, previously uh, as, as we had kind of signs of what was coming, um, drier years. Uh, but realistically, what I tell our team at the MRGCD is I don't think anybody has faced what we're facing from a management standpoint this year. Um, not having Elvado Dam the extent to being in compact debt that we are, and then the conditions that we have related to the drought, right? And so the, I think what the drought is going to do, and I say the drought because even if we get the infrastructure fixed and we um, get more in compliance with our compact debt, I do think we're going to face a hydrologic reality where we're just producing, the system is producing less water. And so um, I think that we have enough infrastructure on this river uh, to not just weather it, but hopefully to thrive. But there's a lot of work to be done, um, both on the farming side, looking at um, the efficiency operation um, within um, an individual farmer's field. Um, MRGCD is doing that same thing now as we look at our system. How can we move water more efficiently and get it to farms more efficiently? And then any type of infrastructure farmers need to invest in for drought resiliency. Um, I know many farmers have invested in drought resiliency wells that they can supplement uh, when the district can't make deliveries. And I, I think folks are going to have to take more realis a more realistic look at that uh, as they go forward uh, because I I expect um, that we will continue to face a very diff difficult hydrologic reality for some time. Um, that is not something, well, I hope it's different, and um, my wish is, it's, is it that it's different. I just don't think that's what um, that we're seeing, and I don't think it's going to be a trend that turns around um, very quickly. Yeah. So is there, um, it, are there concerns that as people can't, get surface water, that they start drilling more for drilling wells and using groundwater? And could we potentially kind of end up in a situation like in the lower Rio Grande where there's compact issues between Texas and New Mexico because of that groundwater pumping? Yeah, I th um, Laura, I think that uh, as we, as I look down on that lower section and um, the implications down there and just then look at the Middle Valley. I think there's, um, it's right to be concerned with um, pumping and the degree. I think one of the things that we as New Mexicans will have to do is uh, put in systems, I think, to monitor that pumping, uh, to, to essentially take that bull by the horns and because uh, I think that's what it's going to take because it is the same cup of water, right? Um, I was explaining this to um, a different individual the other day, imagine a cup of water with a straw in it, you know, surface water drinks it from the top, pumping just uh, drinks it from the bottom, right? And so it is the same cup, and I think we have to be mindful of that. I do think there is a right balance that we can get to, uh, but 
the, on MRGCD side, we don't manage wells. Um, that really comes from the Office of the State Engineer. Um, our game is, um, is primarily in surface water, right, from a delivery standpoint. So there is, I think, needs to be collaboration and coordination, um, get a better understanding of the amount of pumping that's already going on in the Middle Valley that maybe we don't know about, mm -hmm. which I think there is quite a bit of pumping that's going on in the Middle Valley that we don't know about, and start slowly but surely bringing that into um, an understanding and regulating that. And, uh, but I think nothing can be off the board right now. I think the drought is gonna be a great equalizer in this and it's gonna cause us to um, continue to, to look at these things and get better. And I say drought um, and I mean just our hydrologic reality right now because drought sometimes implies that it's coming and going and right. I just don't know if that's what we're seeing. And so um, I, I think the right term is our current hydrologic reality and, and that may be it may be this way for some time. Right. So sometimes I know um, it's, you know, people will look out at the river and see water flowing past, flowing downstream and think, why can't I use that? I, I need that for my field or I need that for my use. Um, but the, the reality of how the river is managed is, you know, it's shared among three states and two countries. So that water is typically belongs to somebody else downstream, but it's, it sounds like the river itself right now is, is also, um, we're looking at some drying in stretches. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so the Middle Rio Grande right now, if we don't receive significant rain, uh, while the Middle Rio Grande and some of its lower reaches dry pretty regularly, that's something that water management agencies like MRGCD, um, Bureau of Reclamation, Army Corps, and the Interstate Stream Commission that we have conversations about that and, and we understand and we're planning for it. But I think what, what we haven't seen uh, since 1983, I believe, is this section of the Albuquerque Reach drying. And it is my um, understanding, talking with our water folks and, and the water management community, that if we don't get a significant amount of rain um, and, and regular shots of rain that we can see drying through this Albuquerque Reach, that we haven't seen um, since about 1983. And, the, and I talked to a lot of individuals about, well, there's water, whose is it? And you're absolutely right. Um, there are, there are, this, this river has overlapping agencies and authorities and, and water. And the water in the river may not be what we call native, which is produced in um, the Rio Grande Basin. It can be what we call San Juan Chama, right? The, and I don't want to go into a ton of detail there, but there are different kinds of water, if that makes any sense, that flow through the Rio Grande. And um, that water gets delivered to different entities and not everybody has a right to all the different kind of water that's in the Rio Grande. Mm -hmm. So if farmers were to say lose their crops or orchards this year due to a lack of water, what sorts of resources, like are we, are we already at the point where we need to be talking about what people need to do this year? Yeah, well I think the uh, resources that, that we have in terms of um, helping folks right now um, are limited in terms of can we pay them if they lose their crop. Um, I'm hoping that folks who are um, investing in crops are, are going through the um, appropriate analysis to determine um, crop insurance and those kinds of things. I do think that that um, could be a topic of conversation um, as we get into the next legislative session. Uh, one thing I think that you're aware of is at the last 30-day session there was a um, about 15 million dollars uh, given to the middle Rio Grande Valley 
um, to um, have a temporary um, fallowing program, uh, which I, I think is um, going to be useful. And I, I know, and this is a hot topic of conversation among farmers. You know, farmers want to farm, right? That's who they are. That's what their livelihood is. And um, so there is an idea out there, I think, that we, we want to, um, that if, if we fallow land, then it'll just stay fallow forever. And I don't think that's the intent of the program. The intent of that program is, I think, to give options to farmers. And I think my hope would be if people consider a program like that, especially in 2023, 2024, and 2025, they would be able to use that money, invest in their farm, make, uh, make some efficiency improvements and or invest in some drought um, infrastructure uh, that would allow them to continue to do what they love. Um, but my job at the district as the CEO and chief engineer, I think, is to provide options to farmers. Um, uh, the following program is optional. Uh, but I think that's what we have on the table right now. I think that uh, there's other things that can be visited, uh, but I think those are the programs that we have on the table right now, um, along with, I think, some of MRGC's internal conservation programs to help farmers with on-farm on efficiency improvements. Mm -hmm. So we touched a little bit on infrastructure. Um, farmers in Corrales have had a, a particularly hard year. Um, I won't even try to describe how the siphon works, <laughs> um, but can you can you just kind of lay out what what problems are related to the siphon and that infrastructure um, issue, and what problems are related to simply a lack of water in the river in the system? Yeah, so the Corrales community faces and has faced an ex an exceptionally difficult year on top of having drought, right? And the reason for that is a key piece of infrastructure, as you, meant, as you mentioned, called the Corrales Siphon. And the simplest way to explain it is that it is an underground pipeline that is underneath the Rio Grande. And it allows us to transport water from the east side of the Rio Grande to the west and allows us to transport a, a pretty decent volume of water. That piece of infrastructure um, is, is broken and needs rehabilitation. And so, MRGCD um, deployed a, a pumping operation this season to try to provide some water, knowing that we were going to deliver significantly less than what the siphon could bring underneath the Rio Grande from the east to the west side and deliver to farmers. And so I will say the whole valley faces drought in terms of the length and the availability and the time that we may have water, but Corrales is also facing an infrastructure issue which limits our ability to deliver um, volume to them uh, while we have water. And that is um, something that we're very much aware of, that I'm very much aware of, uh, that solution is going forward. But um, we're probably approaching a time where those pumps won't be operational. The river, um, we, may be we may be diverting water and delivering to other farmers, um, but the river, the river will have dropped so low that we can't pump out of it anymore. And that's why I say I think Corrales' um, situation is, ex is exceptional and we're taking every step that we can um, to fix that piece of infrastructure as soon as we can. Uh, but my expectation is, is there will be a um, pumping operation next year as well. Um, hopefully that won't be diesel driven. It'll be um, electric, electrical pump driven. Uh, that will allow us to provide a little more surety of water and more continuous operation. Diesel pumps require a, a lot of attention 
Um, these pumps are also a stone's throw away uh, from the Bosque, so we have to be careful uh, knowing the fire, fire danger that we have. And so the, the, it is, I want to be honest, and, and when I talk to the Corrales community or anybody, I, I've, I meet them where they are, and I acknowledge that they face an exceptionally difficult year this year and another one next year. And um, it's hard to hear that. It's hard to see um, farmers and, and see the struggles that they're going through. Um, but I do believe the district's doing the best job we can with the resources that we have and the process we need to go through to get that fixed. And at the end of the day, um, that's another project, Laura, that I'm, I'm probably gonna have to go seek state or federal funding because I expect when we, we, get, we get a price tag after we're done doing our engineering analysis, that's going to be larger than what we can generate at the district all by ourselves. So I think we're going to be looking for support from the state and the federal government potentially. Mm -hmm. Um, for the construction project. Right. So I wanted to touch on rain a little bit. We're all hoping that it'll rain. Um, forecast certainly in the next week here doesn't look great, very hot and dry. Um, when and if, when it rains, um, my understanding is that the ditches won't just immediately fill and everything will be efficient right away. Can you talk about sort of the, the fairness issue that I've heard you talk about um, and also about how the ditches, um, you know, work when they've been dry and then there is water? Yeah, so Laura, I think one of the things to um, remember, because when I, when I talk about rain for the Middle Valley, I also talk about um, an abundance. We need quite a bit of rain because we need, when it rains, we need it to make it to the river. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the first challenge with rain right now is if it rains in our tributaries, um, our, the soil conditions there are so dry that I think um, the amount of water that actually makes it to the river will be impacted by that, obviously. So one, we need, we, we need a good amount of rain. And then if it makes it to the river and we're able to divert it. Uh, one of the things that, that we're struggling with at the district and that that we are worried about is if these canals sit dry for a long period of time, um, there's always losses when you kind of recharge a canal, right? The, the canal is no longer wet, it's now soil and, and earth that wants to take a portion of this water as well. While the canals sit empty, um, what moisture is left is often taken up by vegetation that wants to grow. So now trying to keep that vegetation under order, a, a large part of our vegetation management especially below the flow line is dealt with by the water itself in that nothing grows if it's drowned, if it's being drowned by the water. Mm -hmm. And so, and then the last piece of that is if we have enough water to divert and begin to deliver, um, some of our systems are extremely long. The district, I think, has approximately 1,200 miles worth of um, canals, laterals, and drains, and most of that is earthen. Very little of that is concrete. And so the further you get away from the point of diversion, the harder it is for the district that to be able to deliver a sustained volume of water to reach farmers um, further down the system. And so I do think that um, there may, there's gonna be instances where we have a shot of water, we're diverting it and we're delivering it and not everybody may benefit from there because of just the sheer distance water has to move. And I know that's a fairness issue, and but I think the, the only way I can really explain that is the, uh, some properties are easier to irrigate um, because they're closer to the point of where irrigation is. The further you get away from the diversions, the longer the water has to run in a canal. 
and unfortunately that's a reality in a system as long as MRGCDs. Mm -hmm. And um, <laughs> obviously we all want rain, but we know that the runoff from the wildfires is a problem. And I certainly remember back in 2011 after Los Conchos, the, um, you know, the infrastructure was clogged with ash and debris. Is that any kind of a concern for this year with the wildfires coming into the MRGCD system? I would be remiss if I, if I did not tell you I was concerned, right? Like, so if, if I could order rain, <laughs> I would, I would order it in basins where we haven't had fire damage and in basins that can route that water efficiently and ca cause very little damage. So um, absolutely, I do think that's a concern for all water management agencies um, as we look at the rain. One of the things that's going to do is it's not just gonna bring ash, it's gonna bring sediment. Um, if we have a basin that has suffered um, from severe damage from fire, there's nothing holding that earth in place anymore. So when it rains and it starts to run, it's gonna bring quite a bit of sediment, which creates its own um, management and maintenance issues, and then along with water delivery issues as well, um, longer term past the rain event itself, because you have to clean out sediment, haul it away, um, get the channels functioning again to deliver um, water again safely. And so the, there is a, a, a lot of challenges um, in New Mexico from a water resources standpoint, um, exacerbated by fire as well. Um, NMRGCD is not um, immune to that. We've faced fires within the Bosque. Um, we've had a 900 acre fire in Valencia County and we've, um, I think most folks are familiar with the fire that we just had here in Albuquerque. And so um, the, the, that even affects water delivery as well. I mean, especially in the future, especially uh, uh, as we get water that overbanks and, and whatnot. So, and then just restoring the Bosque back to what the community along the river enjoys. So um, I'm always worried about fire, um, one from the destruction, but then two in our tributaries, uh, what that does to, um, to water delivery. MRGCD does invest, um, especially in our San Juan Chama Basin, looking at fire mitigation mm -hmm. uh, so that we can um, keep the water that we get from that project as whole as possible, deliver it to our farmers. So it's, it's always a concern for sure. Yeah. So I don't want to scare people, but I, I want to underscore the seriousness of this year. So Jason, any final words about you know the outlook for this summer? Yeah, and I don't know if, um, and it may scare folks, but that's not my intent. My intent, I think, and my job is to um, speak the truth and be transparent. Um, I think people deserve to know how difficult it's going to be. Um, and hopefully, Laura, what I'm hoping by opportunities like this and other times I've been able to talk with, with, with the media is that we can get the message out there. Um, I still think there's a lot of folks in the Middle Valley that are not in tune from a water situation on what we're facing, not just in the Middle Valley, but in New Mexico as a whole. Um, what we're facing, I think the community needs to understand is not exclusive to New Mexico. If you look at the greater part of the Southwest, um, from a drought watch standpoint, we are either in um, exceptional to severe drought. Um, that's, uh, that's a reality for the whole Southwest. What we're dealing with in the Middle Valley is the same, just on a different scale to what they're de dealing with on the Colorado River. Uh, and so uh, what I wanna tell folks um, in the community is that um, I think there's a path forward, uh, but I do think that the conversation on drought, how we manage our water, 
I think the conversations we need to have among our federal agencies and some of the overlapping authorities that limit, I think, the usefulness of infrastructure that we have has to be an important conversation going forward because I don't know that this river needs more infrastructure. Um, it needs to make use of the infrastructure that we have. And the more people that know about this issue, I can, I think, then can begin to influence, I think, some of these changes um, from authorities uh, to um, laws, if laws need to be changed and, and partnerships that need to be need to be had. But that starts by getting the community informed about what we face, right? And I will say that I'm getting more and more calls now um, from folks that are just not even in the benefited area of the district trying to understand what the communities that they are historically going to, like if they visit Corrales or they visit the Bosque um, or they um, go north a little bit and, and like to hike along um, the river, right? The more folks that get involved, I think, can help turn these conversations as we, as we deal with these infrastructure issues, these um, authorities, uh, and, and hopefully get all of us water management agencies generally marching in the right direction. Mm -hmm. Well, Jason, thanks so much for talking with me. Appreciate the opportunity, Gloria. Thank thanks. you very much. So on one hand, we are deeply concerned about the ongoing drought and the water supplies in New Mexico, and we are desperately in need of rain and for the monsoon seasons to kick in. But that comes with a big but. Of course, you know, with the wildfires that we've been experiencing, just the devastation on pace for the biggest wildfire season in state history in terms of acreage destroyed, no doubt we're going to hit that, but with those burn scars, we know from history, from past uh, wildfire seasons, that when we get those monsoon seasons and we have those burn scar areas where there's no resistance to that water, we get massive flooding. And so that is a huge worry, a huge concern as well. And you may remember uh, when the Dixon apple orchard uh, up in northern New Mexico flooded and was basically destroyed uh, in one of these situations several years ago. And if you uh, look in the show description here, wherever you're getting this podcast, we're going to put a link up to some video, just unbelievable video of that devastation. And so we turn once again to our line opinion panel to talk about all of that and what the state should be thinking about and doing to try to mitigate the dangers of floods which could also threaten water basins across northern New Mexico, especially as well. So dire situation there. In addition, talking about how the president, at the time of the taping, he wasn't here. At the time you're listening to this, he will have visited New Mexico to see the wildfire uh, damage firsthand or learn about it. We don't actually know if he's going to tour any of it, but he will definitely be here to get an update and so the Line Opinion Panel dives into all of that. I want to remind you who that is this week. We have former State Senator D.D. Feldman and former State House Minority Whip uh, Dan Foley, as well as Dave Mulryan from Everybody Votes. So let's jump into the flood risk conversation. Here's host Gene Grant. Welcome back to our line opinion panel for a final discussion this week. After a scalding hot week across the state, we could be getting rain soon, monsoon as the word is known. That's as we work through a historic fire season, the largest ever in state history already. 
Now, when do we need to start shifting our concern to the threat of flooding on those fire-damaged lands? Uh, Senator Feldman, let me start with you. You've seen a lot of fires here. Should we be concerned yeah. right now? Yes, uh, uh, thunderstorms are not a blessing. Uh, not only can they uh, light new fires, but uh, because of the, the uh, Calf and Hermit's Peak fires uh, burned so hot and on such steep slopes, uh, um, the, the soil is just parched. Uh, and so there's a great a danger that the ash will run off down into the acequias, down into the reservoir like Story Lake near Las, Las Vegas, mm -hmm. um, and uh, really clog up the system. I remember how after the, the Conscious Fire, the, uh, the Jemez River ran black, and uh, the, the Rio Grande was, uh, was black mm -hmm. as well. Yep. Uh, I think that could well happen. Uh, as a result of uh, flash flooding. And remember uh, also how the Dixon orchards uh, were destroyed uh, after, after that fire. Mm -hmm. And that fire was really, really hot too. Uh, and so it really just took out bridges uh, on the Santa Clara reservation and uh, near, up near Cochiti. And uh, it, was, it was a real disaster that it took years to recover from that mm -hmm. as well. Yep, exactly right. Uh, Dave, we got expecting a visit from President Joe Biden in the next few days. We know he's going to go to Santa Fe to meet with the governor, but we don't know yet if he's gonna survey the damage firsthand, that kind of a typical presidential visit. How important is it for him to see the catastrophe with his own eyes when it comes to policy and things like that? Well, I think, you know, so much of being president these days is visual you know it's the picture it's the tv spot it's does it get covered that gets covered on the news i think it's important to show up i think it's important to understand you know and i think that he he obviously knows the governor i think he's here in support of the governor but on a very real thing i think if a president shows up and he sees the amount of damage it, it doesn't hurt for when he puts his finger on the scale to figure out how much money should be sent. And, mm. you know, from the reports that we're getting, there's a tremendous amount of damage up north. You know, the biggest wildfire in the history of the state is not to be taken lightly. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so I think it's important if the president shows up and he sees the damage and it makes him it makes it helpful if he gets more money because really money won't solve all the problems but it won't hurt either you right. know that's one of the and you know when we start having these disasters like you know a lot of people's livelihoods taking wood out of the forests are now gone you know we have a you know potentially very threatening flood season coming so nothing is good here so yes he should show up he should say Basically, here's my checkbook. I'm signing a very big check for you guys. Well, let me know what else you need and I'll be here for you. That well, would be my suggestion. Let me stay with you, Dave, on that very point. There's a lot of issues now about who should pay for the damage, all that kind of thing. Should the president Maybe be- Maybe the people who set the fire should pay for the damage. That's right. <laughs> should, should the president be prepared to say flat out, we are going to solve this financially and maybe surround himself with some families that have been affected? I mean, yes, I think he should be prepared because, mm -hmm. you know, fire policy, wherever, if it doesn't matter if it's New Mexico or California, or wherever we're looking, fire policy just simply doesn't work. Mm -hmm. It hasn't worked in the last 50 years. Some people would say the last 100 years. I don't know. I'm not an expert on fire policy. But, you know, we are dealing with 
if we're dealing with climate change, we are going to have more fires. I think we, this is one of those areas where people need to understand who you vote for and who you elect matters because this is the kind of sub problem that government should undertake. We need new ideas, we need new policies, and we need new ways to sort of attack these problems. And so right. who you vote for really does matter. See, I think that's the opportunity, David, is, is have the president look at camera and our state right in the eye and say we're going in a new direction about how we fight these fires. Daniel, it was mentioned a little bit earlier about, of course, this is the, you know, the largest fire season ever in New Mexico, two largest fires in state history, you know, up sparked within a couple of months. How can we find more urgency on this issue? What needs to be done? Same thing I've said for years, Gene, get the federal government out of managing the forests and turn it over to the people that are actually successful at managing the forests. Mm -hmm. You go anywhere in New Mexico, you can see the line between our, our, the natives, the native, native reservation lands and the national forests that abut each other. Mm -hmm. You go on the reservation, unbelievably well kept versus the forest. And we're not even utilizing the individuals that have the best knowledge to take care of the forests across our state. So, yeah, you know, I think uh, I think that this could potentially this president, the presidential visit could potentially be a problem for Democrats in New Mexico only because you have a fire in a northern part of New Mexico that was lit by government officials. Mm -hmm know by the federal government and now the federal government is going to show up and there's going to be optics with the federal government saying right. uh so it, you know you you may wind up finding that all the democrat candidates for office are in washington dc on the same day raising money as the president's in new mexico visiting there may not be a lot of people from new mexico uh, that want to be seen right now with the perception of the feds being the ones that started this fire but we've got to do something i'm hoping at some point i don't care what party figures out that the government's answer to managing and conserving our federal lands is an, unabid, is an unabated failure and needs to be changed. Senator Feldman, I, you know, again, if I'm on the president's team, I'm saying this is an empathy visit. We're going to talk to families. We're going to surround you with families. We're not going to surround you with official U.S. Forest Service people because they're sort of the bad guys right now, as Dan just mentioned. I'm curious how you think it should go with a presidential visit of this type. Well, you know, um, politicians from Washington can step in it when it comes to uh, northern New Mexico, mm -hmm. uh, dating back to when um, I think it was uh, John Kennedy who came to northern New Mexico during his presidential campaign and really lauded uh, the Mondragons uh, instead of the Mondragons. <laughs> and uh, was uh, immediately seen as an outsider. Yeah. Uh, now, Joe Biden has been to New Mexico before and knows New Mexico a little bit better, uh, but um, he, he has to be very aware of the cultural, uh, the cultural aspect of this fire mm -hmm. um, and, and of this part of the country, which is quite unique, uh, very different from California. Uh, where uh, he's visited fires before uh, or other places and be very cognizant of, um, of the history of protest, uh, as Dan has mentioned, against the, uh, against the Forest Service um, and against, and, and, and it's a tradition in, in Northern New Mexico uh, to be against the fire service ever right. since the Tierra Amaria uh, raid. And so um, he would do well, I think, to acknowledge that, to acknowledge that mistakes have been made mm -hmm. and that he he's going to be searching for solutions and working with 
uh, the acequias and the local residents to uh, to rebuild and uh, uh, restore um, what is a treasure of New Mexico That's that right. has been that has been destroyed. That's right. um, it's the heart of New Mexico, as far as I'm concerned. He's walking into a lot of anger. It's going to take all the political you know, prowess that he has here. Thanks again to our line panel, as always, this week. Be sure to let us know what you think about any of the topics the line covered on our Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram pages. Busy week for Gene Grant as well. But this is a fun interview that we're thrilled to bring you up next. This was a Facebook Live that we did on Friday. Those of you who read the Albuquerque Journal definitely know the name Jolene Gutierrez-Kruger. She has been a reporter and columnist there for a long, long time, and she recently hung them up. She retired her pen and paper, her typewriter. She's moving on to a new phase after a long and storied career at the Journal and so we wanted to get her thoughts on her career, the state of journalism, what's going on in New Mexico right now. Jolene's always got great thoughts and opinions on things, and it's always a thrill to get to talk to her. And again, this was a Facebook Live. If you like these kind of things, make sure you subscribe to our YouTube or Facebook channels and you'll get notified when we're doing these Facebook lives uh, just a way we're trying to get more content to you on a regular basis just like we do here on the podcast so here again Jean Grant and Jolene Gutierrez Kruger thank you Kevin McDonald appreciate it hello folks it's Friday time for a Facebook live and I'm most honored to be talking with Jolene Gutierrez-Kruger, who is the recently retired upfront columnist for the Albuquerque Journal. I'm going to miss you so much. Oh, my goodness gracious. I just, first of all, I got to ask you, how's retirement treating you a whopping, what, three weeks later, are we, or just under? I think I'm like just finishing my second week, actually, week. right now. Yeah. Because I, you know, it's like I had a technical day that I ended, but, you know, I, my last day was the, the moment I pressed that button for my very last column, which was Friday, two Fridays ago. So. Ah, right on. It was on the 28th of May. You're right. Right now that I look at it. Absolutely. Yeah. Not that long ago. How's it feeling? I mean, has it hit you yet? Uh, or, or I should better yeah. ask, have you had a deadline come and go that your body automatically <laughs> was like, I need to be doing something? <laughs> You know, it's actually been relatively easy, but I keep thinking sooner or later, I'm going to be bored. Surely I will, you know, I haven't been yet. You know, I've actually, um, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm humored by the fact that people are saying, oh, well, now you can write a book or now you can do this or now you can do that. And it's like, you know what I want to do? I want to do nothing. just for a little bit just to see what that's like you have to remember i mean like most people i was 16 years old when i started working i've had a job pretty much steadily through all my life uh for the last 40 some years it's been in journalism Mm -hmm. which means it's been deadline deadline deadlines and and i just you know um it's kind of nice not you know thinking oh i i don't have anything to write. Right. It may get to the point where I say, well, I kind of miss writing, 
but not yet, you know, not yet. I'm not there. It, it's so new. It's just so new, you know, I I, not there yet. <laughs> you know, interesting. I saw on your Facebook, someone asked you about writing a book and you made a really interesting point that, you know, you've been tied to the keyboard for so long. It's just good to get away from the simple keyboard. I, I totally got yeah. that. Yeah. I, I think um, one thing that I, I one of the re major, real, real major reasons was this job is um, is not good for your health <laughs> um, in the sense that you sit a lot and you're sitting in front of a, a keyboard. Um, and you know, I'm I don't know, maybe other people are more disciplined than I probably are, but I'll start it like, you know, in the morning and and the next thing you know, it's night right. and I've barely gotten out up. That's you know, right. um, because I, I get on a roll, I'm just going and going and, and it's like, gosh, and I even have one of those fancy watches that tells me time, get up and move, oh, yes. you know, and, and I, I just ignore it. <laughs> so it's important, I think, to have some discipline, which I don't have, um, you know, uh, you know, I know a lot of people that get up early and they go for a bike ride or they go for a run or they do this. I never did because it's always like, oh, no, I gotta, I gotta sit down and start writing. I gotta start writing, you know, or a phone call comes or, and, and, you know, people have my phone number so they can, they can reach me here mm -hmm. no matter what time of day or night. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm just like attached to it and it's, it's, you know, I'm 65 and it's time to not, you know, I don't want to end up not being able to use all my appendages <laughs> so so it's a health thing too yes. so writing a book I, I actually did write a book it just hasn't come out yet um and i was not a something for the city did, sure. did i read that correctly yeah um <clears throat> i was commissioned by the city of albuquerque to write a book that kind of captures how we endured um the year 2020 which of course was so pivotal in the sense that we that was the big COVID year, or we thought it was going to be the only COVID year <laughs> at the time, and also all the um, racial unrest. You know the George Floyd, the the Onyate uh, um, problems, all that. Well, how did the city get by? How did they how did they do? Mm -hmm. And my goal was to not make it. I I I said from the start I. This is not going to be a rah rah, yay, the mayor is so great, you know, because that's not what I do. Right. I wanted to, I didn't also didn't want it to be this boring textbook of city government, because, you know, yawn. Um, so I combined a lot of different uh, just people, just regular people living their lives who are suddenly hit by this unknown, you know, monster. Uh, and how did how did they cope with it? Everyone from the the people that deal with homeless folks on East Central to um, the the guys who ran the uh, the COVID hotels, mm. you know, um, and and the through line is Route 66, you know, and all the history history that goes along Route 66. Chemo Theater plays a pivotal role, you know, East Central. The, um, I I start with the story about. Um, the De Anza Motor Lodge, which was such a big popular thing way back in the day. And it had that neon sign because 
you know, Central Avenue was known for its neon lights. Mm -hmm. and, and we're really lucky in that we had like the gr grandfather of neon lights living here. And then his child took the business over and then, and then his child took the business over. And unfortunately, COVID got a whole generation of them. You're a couple of generations of them. So I use that sort of as part of a metaphor of, you know, the whole COVID epidemic. So, you know, my part of the, the book is done, but it's going through all these different hands and, uh, you know, it's that, no. Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> so I don't, it was supposed to come out um, last year, I think. And, um, and I don't, you know, I, I did my part. Mm -hmm. So there, the city, you know, city, it gets stuck in the city bureaucracy, I suppose. Um, and, um, you know, even just thinking of a cover is, requires a committee, apparently. Yes. <laughs> so who, I don't know anything more about when it's coming out, but, but it was an interesting experience, not one I necessarily want to repeat right away, yeah. because I was doing my columns on top of writing. So there was like no days off um a year oh um, boy which is probably oh, wow. what led to my decision to retire <laughs> i i was just a lot say, of writing might have been a contributing factor exactly <laughs> you know yeah. and i the, all these national you know washington post reporters and stuff that write books on top of what they do i think i don't know how you do it other than they maybe take a hiatus or something like that um mm -hmm. or have assistance well i don't have any of those Right. Um, this, we don't, we don't do paid me. hiatus in Albuquerque, right? Exactly. To go right. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool, though. I'll, I'll be interested to read your bit, though. That's an interesting hook. Uh, hopefully, hopefully, you get a last look, you know, at your bit before it goes to publication. But that's interesting. I, I'm I'm curious, you know, when you when I mentioned up front and, um, you know, long time doing that column. Did you have an overall goal for how you wanted Upfront to work for you? Was it, I mean, you had such a unique voice, this beautiful combination of reporting plus opining at the same time, which was really quite the high wire trick that came off brilliantly. Did, did you have a goal when you first started it and, and thought, okay, I'm with three others who do their thing. I wanna do X. What, what was X for you with, with, yeah. your, with your Upfront? Well, you know, I guess the beauty, but also the fearful part of, of Upfront is we were, all of us Upfront writers uh, were called into the conference room and basically said, here, you're all Upfront columnists, you know, and, and not given a lot of uh, direction. The one thing though, that really stuck out for me, uh, and this is then editor Kent, Kent Walsh gave us a sample of something he really liked. And I, don't, I have no idea what the, the topic of the column was, but what I liked about it was it told a story and then it was the very end, like the last three paragraphs, let's say, where it kind of got you with whatever point was being tried to make. Mm -hmm. And I really liked that because I, I thought I, I don't, I wanted, I want to get you to come along with me and hopefully by the time we get to the end, you are with me. And so I want to just put that fine point on whatever it is I was trying to convey to you about this story. Mm -hmm. And so to me, that was a nice, a, a kind of a not beaten 
beat me over the head with my opinion. I never wanted to really do a lot of navel gazing. Mm. I And sometimes you can't even tell what my opinion, well, hopefully you can't tell what my opinion is. Sometimes it's the opinion of, of whoever is in the story. I think for me, I, I, I said this in my, my goodbye column, um, I always wanted to see the, the good in everybody and understand the bad, you know, because I think we have both. And, and, um, and um, I know sometimes I focused a lot on the bad in the very beginning, I, it was pretty much all bad. <laughs> and, and I started making a, a turn to a little more good. I, I frankly was under the impression, well, I still am, that, um, you know, people say they want good news, but then they won't read it. They go right to the bad stuff. And when you look at um, like our online hits, like what stories are hitting. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's this little three paragraph, uh, what we call a brief on B4 about a homicide gets more hits than a huge package with photos and, you know, just big splash on page one, because, you know, people say they want the good news, but they really tend to gravitate toward the bad. So, to me, there's sort of a, a balance that one needs to find. Um, you know, how do you make good news interesting? To me, um, sometimes when I've read good news or not, uh, happy news or whatever, to me, it comes off sometimes as a little too fluffy, not very well written. Um, so I, I, I really try to kind of grab you, hopefully, with, with a writing style that may interest you, you know? um, uh, and, and interesting people. And sometimes, you know, I, I mean, a lot of the people in my stories are not like the, the big movie star or the big high profile government official. It's like, like your neighbor, you know, doing something cool. Um, and, and that's, that's kind of what I went for was just, you know, everyone has that story. Everyone has that good side and bad side. Well, let, let's find it. Let's, let's, that's right. About I, that. I appreciate that. Actually, you know, it's interesting. You you flew so close to the ground by highlighting people living everyday lives with everyday struggles. Maybe a bad turn had come in their lives and how they maybe climbed out of a hole after two or three years. Those are very instructive stories. I mean, folks might call those that bad news or bad or whatever the case may be. But I think that was the hitch to your popularity was reading about people who were regular people struggling through some bad turn of events that perhaps caused by the government, perhaps caused by law enforcement, uh, which is government, but you know what I mean? It, it's just, and I yeah. always found myself in the position saying, how would I react in this situation? Do, do you know what I mean? It, it always sort of like got me thinking about myself and how I would be. A lot of folks that you highlighted were very forgiving after bad things had happened to them over a number of years. I mean. It was really quite the rainbow of human emotion uh, and how it was being expressed there. At what point did you know that that was, that was going to be good for you, so to speak, by going to, to folks and having them tell their stories close to the ground like that? I, I think actually it's because the more, uh, more stories like that I told, the more people came to me with their stories, ah, you know, like, like nice. uh, I would, a lot of people that came to me would say, my, my friend told me to, to call you, you know, right. like call Jolene at the journal. 
And, and I, I thought, wow, that's great. I mean, and, you know, so it, it, it was like, honestly, there, I had way too many stories to tell. Um, so I tried, <clears throat> I would try to, um, you know, I, I would have this list, I, I, you know, this huge list and I'd go through it and, and sometimes none of them would hit me right. Mm -hmm. And then I get a call, you know, I, I'd be like, oh God, I have no column. I have no column. And then the call would come in and magically that was the, that was the column I'm supposed to do, cool. you know? So I think it's a lot of intuition and a lot of just getting feedback from, from readers and the fact that people were finding me um, was really a blessing, honestly, um, mm -hmm. to, to not have to, um, I mean, obviously you still have to dig. And, so, and sometimes, you know, honestly, uh, some of the stories did not pan out um, I remember this one lady, she had this story about her daughter and this horrible guy that was ruining her life and stuff. And so I sat, sat down with her and I sort of went through the criminal background check and I said, well, did you know this about your daughter? And I would read her some stuff and actually it was very enlightening for her and, and actually very heartbreaking for her. We both agreed. I mean, it would have made a pretty good column actually, but we both agreed that it was it was too raw for her at that moment because she did not know all these things that were being revealed. And so sometimes I spend a lot of time with people only to realize that what we're discovering is maybe not ready for prime time, if you will. Um, right. And I'm okay with that. You know, sure. um, I, I spent, a, I used to spend a lot of time with people that just wanted to talk, you know, and sometimes I'd wonder, I don't think there's a column here. But um, but they just wanted to 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 talk, and you know that's probably why I sat so much. <laughs> I was talking so much. <laughs> Every good feedback from folks you highlighted that they had some regrets because you know I've had many conversations with people after the fact that you know you got to understand when you hang your face and your name out there, not as the columnist but as the uh, the the subject of the column or the subject of the story. A lot of things can come your way in your life you never would anticipate. Did any kind of that feedback as well from folks? Because we're talking about the front page of the biggest paper in the state. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure I have. Um, but I, I mean, nothing comes springs to mind where, where someone was so outraged and angry. I'm sure they yeah. were, but yeah. you know, and I, I, I do kind of, and sometimes I would warn them, you know this may not go this may not go the way you think you right. know there was a there was a woman who had this amazing story uh you could almost couldn't believe it um where her her soon-to-be ex-husband literally tried to kill her and yet was not suffering the the criminal consequences of that and and um um there was a lot of negative feedback against her because they thought she was the bad guy. And I'm, and I kept thinking, how did I write it like that? You know, um, but she was pretty strong about it and she was actually great and things worked out, I guess, in a way for her. Um, uh, but I do have to, I, I do sometimes warn people that, you know, I have to be really honest. I, you know, this is a, I'm not going to sugarcoat this. So you better be really clear. I'll tell you one story really quick that um, I used to do this thing and I don't anymore. Well, I don't do anything anymore, but I, at the time <clears throat> I used to write these stories 
<clears throat> that had to do with um, unsolved homicides. Mm -hmm. You know, just to bring um, the person's story to the front again, to remind people that this story is out there and maybe you have information about this case and you thought it was already solved and you didn't know. And so there was a, a, young, a, a woman mother um, who was found dead uh, up in the Sandia Mountains. And um, as far as I know, her case has never been solved. But I, I made the mistake of um, letting her, her husband see um, a, a, a preview of what I was writing. And the real reason was I did not want to get any of the facts wrong, especially on something like that. And my editors gave me the okay to do that and all that. Well, it got into the hands of another family member. Ooh. I mean, he was fine with it, but the other family member was outraged because the story wasn't about more about her. And I'm like, well, it's actually about this woman who died, not you. And it was an odd thing because it's like, you're not the focus of the story. So this happened on a Thanksgiving, of course. And my editor gets screaming and stuff. And so I had to write a sidebar featuring that person oh boy. to appease her. Um, and I thought, and, and that's when I decided, you know what, we're never, I'm never going to give people, you know, new, you know, early looks at what I write. I, I sometimes go through with it with them if it's very sensitive, just to make sure we're right. But um, it should not have gotten into the hands of this woman. But then I wonder what would have happened if the, if she hadn't gotten it and then she'd scream bloody murder once it was published and there was nothing more that I could do about it. So, Fine. I mean, yeah. you know. That's a, um, that's a classic story, isn't it, from the business? That you, you know, you show something, everyone sees it their own way. Uh, they may not even be news, you know, steady newspaper readers. They, you know, you know, it's a very tricky thing. But you do bring up a, a, a subject I do want to talk with you about, and that is your consistency talking about violence against women. And, mm -hmm. you know, it wasn't, let me put it this way, it wasn't like it was a theme that we could expect, but when you string the pearls together over all the years, there was a very consistent theme there about this that I thought came off very effective in our understanding about this issue, as opposed to a straight news story. Do, do you get what I mean? When you humanize these mm -hmm. kind of things, it makes the whole thing just very, very different. And I'm curious if that was a, 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 a set example you wanted to do, or if it just sort of came about organically, and then the feedback started coming in and you just kind of ran with that. But I, I, I thought that was just a very effective way to approach the subject. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Well, I tell you, I think the reason that happened is because for years back when I used to work at the Tribune, Albuquerque Tribune, before mm -hmm. I closed in 2008, um, I was a cop reporter for a few years there, and um, I had really stiff competition. Uh, covering cops is not an easy beat. It's 24-7. Um, especially if you don't have another cop reporter, you know, like you don't have an AM and PM. So I, I was always out running around and doing stuff. And, and it was a, you know, it maybe still is this way. I don't know, but it, it was such a good old boys network. Um, and the, I was at the Tribune and the reporter, the cop reporter for the journal was a guy and he could go into these news conferences or at, at, crime scenes or whatever and talk about fishing and hunting and you know guy things and stuff and i'd be like 
um, how are your kids? You know, <laughs> you know, just whatever. And um, so I knew I had to come up with a different way to present crime stories. And, and I just decided, you know, you can write these crime stories and they're kind of soulless and cold. And after a while, they all kind of sound the same, but let's try to find out who these people are. You know, let's, let's, what, let's try to find out. Um, I mean, I think a lot of reporters do this too, but um, uh, you know, sometimes there, the story, there's so much more of the story than this person beat up that person or this person shot that person. Well, who is that person? What's the dynamics there? And, and uh, I know that I remember I, when I was no longer the cop reporter and I became a special projects reporter, I said to my editor, okay, I'm, I'm glad to have this opportunity, but when there is a big crime or something really serious, I still want to do the victim stories because mm. <clears throat> hopefully this cop reporter isn't out there somewhere. Uh, I was worried about how this new cop reporter was going to handle it because he, that was not, he was not good with victims. You mm. have to really, it's, it's not an easy thing. I mean, ask any reporter who has to knock on the door of someone who just heard the worst news of their lives. You know, it, it is a really hard thing to do, but um, it, if you just remember, if you just think about it, like how would I, how would I feel if someone shows up at my door and wants to know about this terrible thing? If you, if you just start remembering that, um, I think that's what helped me um, be okay. You know, I, I actually liked doing that because I felt like I, was helpful um, to these folks. And, and that's why I think, you know, just being able to get them to talk to me and sit with me and share things, sometimes shockingly, it would surprise me sometimes, like, I can't believe you are trusting me so much. And, and I, I, I was so honored by that. But if you get that extra look, if you have that time, to get that extra look and that and feel and, and I can tell when a, an interview is done when I start feeling something you know and sometimes cop reporters don't have that time they have to like well, go on to the next go on to the next. I I had the luxury of spending as much time as I needed to mm -hmm. with the person and I think that's what gives you a more well-rounded story about who these survivors are who these victims are because you kind of know them, you get to know them, you get to feel their pain. Of course, at the end of the day, I get to go home and I can release myself of that pain and they still have it. And I, and I understand that, but, but I, I kind of think that's, that's what it is. It's just, I had more time mm -hmm. and, and I wasn't afraid of talking to folks like that. I think some reporters are very squeamish about that. They like, Oh, I can never talk to someone like that. I, I spent uh, half a day once in the, a cemetery with a woman who went every day to the cemetery of her teenage daughter who was murdered. And um, she, she brought lawn chairs and she played music on a stereo system and new flowers every day. And it was like, this is what she did. And, and I sat with her. Now, she, she mostly only spoke Spanish, so for a little bit of the time, I had someone there that could help me translate because my Spanish isn't that great. But that person left finally, 
and I was still with this, this woman and we're both trying to communicate, but you know what? Grief, grief doesn't know languages. And so we could be there for hours together and understand each other. So I think that's why those stories have always been so important to me. I have to, I have to imagine as well that it takes a strong sense of empathy, not, not you know, the mm. empathy in the moment. I mean, people can gin that up, but I mean a genuine, this is part of who you are. It's part of your emotional makeup. Because again, you can't last if you have to gin stuff up in, in that kind of environment you're talking about. No, I can't. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, and you can't. And and I, I do think it's important that, you know, uh, I know reporters who are very empathic. I, I'd like to think I am as well. Mm -hmm. um, and you have you have to take care of yourself because you've got, you take on so much grief. But like I said earlier, at the end of the day, I get to go home and I that I can wash that grief away. Those people can't. And I think for me, that's what helped me move on from it and not there's something we call or I call it. I think other people call it hitting the wall every now and then you just hit the wall. And that means we're loaded with the emotion that you are carrying inside. And and I've hit the wall a few times. Um, mm -hmm. But um, my my way of dealing with that is, as I say, remember, reminding myself that I, once I write the story, I, it's I'm not living with that grief anymore. There, but they are. That's one thing. And number two, I have a really great dog. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that that um, helps me forget things that and and gives me perspective. I'm laughing, but that's no joke. That's a real thing. Have a good dog that, yeah. No, it is. Absolutely. He's around here somewhere. Right? There you go. Hope to hear from him uh, during this, actually. I'm, I'm curious, <laughs> you know, like, any, like any other public figure or public endeavor, there's the side that supports and there's the side that does not support. We can call them trolls or whatever the case may be. <laughs> You've never really let on, but my sense is you had a pretty intense troll factor coming at you day and night. Am I wrong on that? I mean, boy, oh boy. No, you are not wrong. Okay. <laughs> um, I, I actually, one of those letters, well, you know, when you, when you retire, when you leave the journal, they cut off your, your emails, um, and which was like cutting off my arm because it, I have years and years in there. And, 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 um, uh, but so before that happened, I, I actually sent a letter out to one of my first um, curmudgeons is what I call them. Um, as I'll just say his first name was Wallace. And I, cause he would just, oh my God, I, I think it was an insomniac. Cause he'd always like send me messages at, you know, midnight or two in the morning or four in the morning, you know, you know, why do they hire you? Your stuff is trash. That doesn't belong on page one. And, and, and I tried so hard to get that guy because he was the first one like that. Um, I said, you know, have coffee with me, you know, let's chat, you know, maybe if you got to know me and why I do what I do, you would maybe, maybe we could understand each other more. Oh, I'd rather have a root canal. Oh no, no, no. And, and I mean, he just awful. <laughs> And then, um, then he'd disappear for a while, and then, um, and then uh, he'd come back, and I'd always say, "Oh, I was worried about you." You know, 
<laughs> he's like, that's a strange response. And it's like, well, you know, I'm, I'm used to you being around. And, um, so I, I, I never did get that coffee with him, but we, we did actually have some really nice conversations, um, uh, email conversations. There's another gentleman, uh, there's two more I'll just mention. Mm -hmm. One was just a wonderful guy. I, I called him my favorite curmudgeon. His name is Christopher. And um, I actually, he, unfortunately he died um, just this year and his wife reached out to me and to let me know. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I went to his funeral and the whole thing. And uh, uh, because he was not mean about the way he disapproved something. And I think he was, he was just one of those old guys that, that wanted to understand like, why did you write that? Or what's that, you know? And, but he was never like, like if you disagree, that's great. Let's have a conversation. Um, but you don't have to personally attack me. On the other hand, there's another guy named Silvio, and a lot of people know him in the, in the world, yeah. <laughs> um, who was brutal, brutal. Um, and, and not only, and, and his, his emails go out to a whole bunch of people. So a whole bunch of people would read what he said about me. And he, he did one last dig on me before I left. Um, and that was, uh, uh, it was very personal because he brought up my son. Um, who died of a heroin overdose in 2017, which I wrote about, and just so vicious about it was my fault that it happened. I didn't do anything to stop, you know, just stuff that he knew nothing about. Mm. And and I remember being pretty upset by that because it's like, you know, you know, come come at me for my what I write, but don't come for personal things like that. That was There's just line. beyond. That's right. There's and to this line. day, I, I still would like to see him and talk to him, you know, and say, why were you such an angry person that did that make you feel better? I mean, I don't know why people do that. Um, honestly, um, it's cowardly out, so. in some ways, at least he signed his name, you know, I mean, right. he signed his name to all those things. He could be pretty intense though. You're, you're right. Silvio was just one of those guys. And, and uh, I, I, that's very disappointing to hear that he made it so personal though. That's that, there's a line to these things in my world. So it's, yeah. it's crazy. You know, when I when I think about your column uh, up front, of course, in, in, in the entire ecosystem of the paper, what it did was it really kind of balanced the paper. It, it was very interesting. And I would talk about this with folks who were not in the business of reporting, but just regular readers. We would talk about your column. It was very interesting how folks would, would read you put it down and then go back to the paper maybe later in the day, <laughs> you know what I mean? Because the hard stuff, they, you know, they felt like it was being repeated lots of other places, but your bit was only there in the paper in that one particular day of the week. Mm -hmm. You know, in, in, in thinking about papers and how they do it, is, is writing columns like yours, should papers be thinking about this to be able to, to write some of the the ship here we're losing a lot of folks in in the you know the readership side of things and it's always seemed to me if more folks had more jolene's on their staff that would actually help a newspaper quite a bit again in that sense of an ecosystem of the paper and i know it's hard to judge your own work that way but i'm curious your, your thoughts on that well obviously i'm going to say i, I wish that i wish there were more jolene's <laughs> no um i mean i think i what I, and what i mean by that really is uh um, uh, there's a, I think sometimes newspapers forget that 
news means different things to different people. Yes, you got to write about the the January 6th committee hearings, obviously, mm -hmm. uh, the fires going on. Uh, I mean, obviously, you have to write about those. But let's not forget about the little things in life that make us who we are, the, the stories of real people doing real things. And, and one of the ways you can do that is by being a real person yourself. And so you saw my little mugshot, which obviously doesn't look like me anymore because my hair is not dark anymore. <laughs> and, and, um, um, but I, I was very okay with um, putting myself out there, right? You know, like, you know, and I know there was another one of us upfront people who from the start said, if you want me to be personal like that, I'm not doing that. I can't do that. That's not who I am. And that's fine. That was the way she, she did her thing. But, but I was more, yeah, I want people to know me. I want them to feel comfortable with me. Um, I want to share my stories when I think they might resonate. Otherwise, it beca that becomes kind of navel-gazing, like, here's my life, here's my story. No, I only tried to tell stories about my life when I thought they were relevant to other people. And I also think it was helpful in letting people realize that, look, I'm, I'm a regular person. You know, all of us at the Journal are regular people. We live in this community. We care about this community. We're not, you know, like the enemy of the people. We're not, you know... Mm -hmm. uh, jackals, you know, and stuff like that. Um, we actually care about the work we do. And, and, and for me, that was a banner I carried to show that, look, I'm not, you know me because you see my picture and, and because I put myself out there. Most reporters can't do that. But please understand that we're all very human people. And I, and I, you know, I, the Tribune used to do a pretty cool thing years ago where they would invite people in for our planning meetings, you know, so that they would see how news is decided and how it worked and all that. And I think sometimes we have become this sort of alien living in ivory tower kind of people. And that's so not us, but people don't know that. They don't understand the news business. And we've done that kind of to ourselves by, by you know, Yes, you have to have a line, um, but I think you can also soften the line a bit by making sure people know, give me a call, you know, talk to me, uh, tell me stories, uh, you know, honor me with, with your memories of whatever you want, and maybe, maybe you'll want to listen to something I have to say. Um, so I do think just that person, personality thing, that personalizing I'd like to think that's kind of important. I, I'm not sure who might be doing that for the journal. We've got plenty of people that could step in, I'm sure. Um, uh, my buddy Ollie Reed is great like that, you know, and mm -hmm. and um, and I, I'd love to see him do something. Um, uh, I mean, I could name a whole bunch of other people that work there that that would be great doing something like that. But I just think you need to see a human face and know that we are humans. <laughs> That's right. behind the keyboard and um and i was happy to be that human for people i couldn't i couldn't agree more it's, it's very well put you know sometimes somehow we've ended up in this privileged class 
sort of designation for a lot of people out there where some society's enemy, and I'm not quite sure how that all happened, but it's happened. And that's it's a difficult yeah. thing to punch through. Yeah. Let me take you back to the to the Tribune, uh, the long lamented, you mentioned 2008, it closed and it was a very yeah. tough time, you know, to be a two newspaper city sort of meant something back then. And then went, went down to one paper, it was kind of a blow for a lot of folks. And I'm curious where you think newspapering has gone since, because we have to add in now, we've got a lot of, you know, online only uh, entities who are doing great work. They don't necessarily have to take on the burden of, of, of having a printing press and all that kind of a thing and distribution, and which is very difficult to, to pay for and, and, and be profitable. But I'm curious in, in the sense of just news gathering and getting that human voice out there, how you see the business evolving in Albuquerque at this point. I actually really worry about this um, a lot. Um, <clears throat> I know that if you if you pick up a journal, well, I'll, I'll, let me put it this way. Um, when I was working at Tribune and looking across the hallway to the journal, because of course we were in the same building, um, I was a courts reporter for a while and I covered all the courts, all of them. The journal had you know, a Metro court reporter, a second judicial district court reporter, a federal court reporter and a Sandoval County court reporter and, you know, everything else. And today they have one court reporter, just like the Tribune did. Um, and, and people are always talking about how, well, we've, we've had to downsize because, you know, profit margins are pretty bad in the newspaper industry. And, and yet, I can't think of a time where we, we need newspapers more. And, mm -hmm. and, and, um, and I know people like to bash the journal because that's what they do. Yep. Um, but what would happen if we weren't here? You know, what would happen if Dan Boyd and Dan McKay weren't covering government or Jessica Dyer? You know, what, what, would, what would happen if you didn't know what was going on in the education world? And unfortunately, because we have less reporters, we can't cover everything. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, and that troubles me. Also, it's a, it's, you know, back in the day, I would Tribune and I did cop stories. My deadline was four o'clock in the morning. And, um, uh, and sometimes I'd stay up all night writing. Um, and now your deadline is whenever you're done with that story, you know, and, and that's, it's a tiring cycle. So you wear out people a little bit faster too. Mm -hmm. And, and um, uh, so I, I, I do really like online, but you know, I, that's how I read my papers. You know, I, I get a whole bunch of newspapers and I read them all online, but I live up in the East mountains where delivery isn't that easy. Um, and, and I feel like maybe that will eventually be a thing. I, I lament the fact that the days of how it was when I grew up are, are gone, I guess. And when I was a kid, we lived next door to my grandparents. You know, a lot of families always lived nearby and all that. That's kind of not always true anymore either. And my dad would get home from work in the evening and we'd go next door um, where my grandparents lived and they had the journal and the Tribune, but I don't know that if they read the journal in the morning or not, but they waited till the afternoon until my dad got home. And we sat in the living room and passed the paper around. Yep. 
you know, and you know, some people wanted just the sports section and some people wanted the whole thing. And, and you, it was like a shared communal thing. Um, and you'd say, Hey, did you read about this? And, and, or, you know, or the people that read the journal in the morning at the kitchen table and hand each other paper. So if you've got your little, you know, iPad, which is what I use, I feel like the sharing part isn't quite there. I mean, I guess you can hand your iPad over um, or something like that, but, but just that communal and that ritual of reading the newspaper as almost as a family or almost as a daily, well, as a daily routine. Um, sometimes the younger folks that I talk to, it's, it troubles me that that is not part of their daily life. And I think that's why there's, there's a lot of naivete out there or misunderstanding about how the world works, the government works. And, and when we don't understand how those things works, that's how we end up with people that should probably not be in government because we don't get, you know, that's how we get mad at judges, but we don't understand how the court system works because we just don't read enough, you know, newspapers. So I worry about that. I really, I, 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 I wish there was some way to really get the, the newspaper habit back, um, be it on the tablet or not, you know, you good know, point when you the younger folks too. daily you know that thread of understanding starts the court system is a, is a beautiful example you can't just dive into one story and feel like you know how you know something so complex works and i very much appreciate your point about how newspapers were read in the family dynamic i think that's been uh not talked about enough i mean i grew up in a household as well you'd hear you know your dad snapping the newspaper open when he got home from work you could almost tell which page yeah. was on by the count you know what I mean? Then all the grunting and moaning coming out of the room, he would see things that disagreed with him. It's like, oh God, he's gonna, we're gonna hear about this. And sure as heck at the dinner table, he would rehash the entire story with his opinion. We'd throw in our opinions. And like you said, it was a whole family conversation about that one dang story at the dinner table. And that's how you learn right. about how the mechanics of your town worked. It was very interesting. I've not heard someone articulate that like you just did. Well, and, and you know, I mean, I remember in school, middle school, or I guess it was junior high back when I was in school, mm -hmm. and, and there was a teacher there who, and she's a science teacher, but she had this thing every day where she'd have this quiz and you'd get like extra points or something. And she'd ask you um, things that were in the news, you know, that uh, day or recently yes. or something like that. And, and I won those all the time because my family read the newspaper and, and, um, and I thought it'd be great for teachers to start doing more of that. I, maybe they do. I, I think that'd be great if they did to keep their kids involved and informed and, and getting the habit of, of knowing things, you know, mm -hmm. about what's going on uh, in their world. When, when I, I try, I used to, after I graduated from Albuquerque high a million years ago, um, I lived all over the country. I, I, and every time I moved, one of the first things I did was, you know, you, you get, you, you sign up for your phone, you, you make sure you know what your, your address is and you sign up for your newspaper, wherever you lived. Um, and I, I wish that would come back. I, yeah. I feel like New Mexico, I mean, not New Mexico, new, newspapers are under siege because of the past administration calling us the enemy of the people and fake news and all that. And, and that has been such a blow 
um, because we're, we're not, you know, I mean, yeah, we get things wrong and yeah, there may be, I think most people would agree that the journal has a maybe conservative bent. I would say it's more of a traditional bent is the way I put it. And again, I always have to remind people that the editorial page is completely separate from the newspaper because um, people don't get that. You know, people get mad when we endorse somebody and it's like, yeah, but that's not us. <laughs> we didn't do that. That's those guys in that glass room that right. make those decisions. They're not the ones writing the news stories. Um, so again, that's because we have lost our understanding of how the news works, how newspapers are. Let me you throw know? an idea at you that I've been, I've been talking about forever. You and I, we're, we're the same age. And we came up with a time where there were high school newspapers and high school radio stations. And literally, you know, and, and I can think back to maybe seventh or eighth grade, I'm not kidding here. We had a class on how the newspaper worked, basically breaking down the sections of the newspaper, understanding what was the editorial page, what was the report, you, you know what I mean? And yeah. I think all that's gone. I, I, what, should that come back? Just that simple, you know, you don't have to spend weeks and weeks and weeks on it, but you could just spend some time with kids, say, this is how a newspaper works. And, and we'd have reporters come in, we've had editors come in to speak to our classes. Now, again, I grew up in, a, in Boston, that's a very newspaper-y city. You know what I mean? There were four of them when I was a kid. So it was, you know, you know loaded with newspapers. But I've always felt like starting uh, high school newspapers and high school radio stations might help with this understanding about how media works and, and getting kids to understand early. Because by the time you got to a 45-year-old, I think the cement's dry on how they are willing to understand these yeah. things. What do you yeah. make of that idea? I, I would agree with that. I would like, but I would do that and incorporate civics because um, ah. I think we've also lost that in schools. You yes. know, I think I think a lot of people, a lot of kids, well, a lot of adults don't even understand the government system because they, why do they have to, I guess they think, um, and that people had civics classes. I mean, it was a girl stater, uh, you know, we, we, we had stuff like that. So, so just nuts and bolts stuff about how the world, your world works. Mm -hmm. civics, newspapers, the media, um, just all that, just that stuff that isn't in a test, you know, um, that you, you can't teach to that test. You, it's something that's real world experience, I think. Right. Um, I would love to see that. Yeah, I, absolutely. And I think that leads me to my next question. If that understanding increases, it's an easier push for newspapers. And this is the, the question here to charge for news. I, I think the bis, big disconnect right now is people don't see the value in paying for your newspaper subscription online. Everyone's so used to getting everything free online. Well, they think it's free. Yeah. You're paying yeah. somewhere down the line. But that understanding of, 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 like you're saying, the civics end of it and where the newspaper and news gathering, maybe to broaden that a little bit, fits in might make the idea of a subscription model a little bit easier of a push. I'm curious your sense of that as well. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I've, I've had uh, people complain that, oh, I don't get a subscription. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know why I have to pay for that. It's like, well, we're not working for free. Mm -hmm. You know, we do have, you know, the, the paper isn't free, um, you know, the actual material. Um, 
I, I do, you know, it's not that much, um, but, you know, um, I, I, I think that that's been the struggle with newspapers is trying to find the right model, especially mm -hmm. the online, mm -hmm. um, to figure out what can we do in terms of advertising. You know, we, we, we took such a hit with classifieds because of things like, um, uh, uh, what's that, Craigslist and, yeah. and, and, and things like that, where our classified ads aren't as big as they used to be. Um, because there's so many other ways to get your information out, you know, if you're selling a car, say, mm -hmm. and, um, and, and the advertising isn't as, I mean, I think it's getting better, but um, you've got, there's got to be some sort of balance. And, uh, you know, I think the journal's done a lot in um, trying to figure that out. They've been part of national um think tank groups and stuff that are trying to figure out what is the best way to provide you the news as, as easy as we can, because you don't want it to be elitist. You know, you don't want to be, you know, what, what is the wall, the wall street journal charges a huge ton. So who reads that because it's so expensive. Um, we want people to read us um, and we want news to be as free as we can make it, mm -hmm. but there has to be some way to pay for it, you know? And so, so I, you know, the, the people that are smarter than about those things, hopefully we'll figure that out, but so far still, still trying to figure it out. I think it's a tough, it's a tough subject and no one's gotten it right. I mean, I think a lot of times the newspaper business, it, it's so hard to understand that from the consumer end, we're paying for a lot of different things. And so including television access, all that kind of stuff. And so whenever yeah. there's an ask of any sort, we're doing calculations on the entirety of our <laughs> buying, you know, for information thing, not just the 10 bucks a month or whatever it is for that one particular paper. And so to make a value proposition, I, I you know, and to be fair to the newspaper folks, I, I've often sensed, I, I wish the sales department was more on the, on the, uh, side of pushing out these ideas because I just don't see very many compelling reasons to to subscribe to a publication as the way they're putting it out. You're not going to get very far with most people giving them five free articles in, in a month and then having them make a decision on whether to spend $120 for the year for that newspaper. That's just not going to work. And I, I, I've just got to think that folks can start to figure out there's got to be a better way to entice people. It's going to be a longer period of time more articles, more, you know, more in-depth stuff so that you get to the point where you could not imagine your life without that newspaper. You just, you couldn't even imagine mm -hmm. it. And that's not going to happen with five free articles, most of which you can get dupl duplicated stories elsewhere for free. That's a whole nother conversation. It's a very <laughs> difficult subject. I know newspapers are really yeah. struggling with that right now, but let me go back to online here for a quick second. Uh, one of the things I, you know, again, tying in how you did your thing, you, you were so close to the street, so close to people. I kind of wonder sometimes if papers have often thought about their website and what a public forum it could be. You know, don't rely on your staff to, to do it. Really put a call out there. And I'll give you one particular example. I know for a fact that the journal's been approached many, many, many times for more theater coverage. And the thing is, you've had a wonderful theater critic for a lot of years, um, you know, who did a wonderful job, but he can't be at every show. 
but a lot of other theater people who love theater can why don't you have people who just write their own critiques of of you know you know you get you get where i'm getting at here there's Mm -hmm. lots of different ways to cover things in other voices with a little bit of guidance you see what i'm getting at here including sports uh prep sports all that kind of thing because with short staffs you got to find other ways to cover things that mean things to people and it you know maybe getting down to the citizen level the citizen reporter level might be a way to do that yeah and you know i, I that's more of a what an editor would go through and i i know when i was an editor and i i would have people well freelance but then you don't have a freelance budget but um and and sometimes the work was was harder than it was worth because they didn't they didn't write the style that you wanted it and or you you had to do such heavy editing um, that it's really hard to find those really good community writers out there mm-hmm. and I and and then it's like and then do you guys want to do this for free <laughs> I mean maybe but um, yeah. but how good is the quality of of your work and is that extra work for the editor mm-hmm. um, you know I, I'm not sure I know that we used to do uh, comments and things online and uh, I used to really love that but then they got so nasty that we just got rid of that Right. And, and, um, you know, so, so I don't, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think, I think the journal would welcome community uh, input like that. It's just that it has to, I mean, you obviously can't have someone that says, well, the play was really good. You know? right. And then you'd have to find people that really were willing to do that. And I don't know if they, there's an effort to do that or not. Honestly. I don't think it would be that hard, honestly, from my point of view, I, I just, I, I hear you on a, on a quality threshold. I do think the website has a bit of a different quality threshold for folks who are willing to tune in, so to speak, as opposed to the paper, paper side. You know, that, that's interesting how to, to balance yeah, that yeah. point well taken. Sure, yeah. sure. I could see that. I could see how about, that. let's talk about smaller papers and um, their importance. And I'll talk about your your neighbor, Leota Harriman, doing great work out there on your, your side of town. Uh, is, is that where newspapering the future might be, you know, in really getting down to a, she puts out a quality paper, but with a small footprint, well, not so much square miles wide, she's actually covering a pretty wide square miles, but you know what I'm saying, yeah. you know, in right. having people really hyper local, is that part of the solution here in, instead of a journal trying to cover a huge region, a metropolitan area? Well, I, I think that there there was that thought, you know, there a, a friend of mine um, who bought the Santa Rosa paper yes. certainly believed that and um, uh, turned that into a really great little paper. And, and he truly believed that he he sold the paper eventually um, and went on to some other endeavor. Mm-hmm. Um, but but but, you know, when you have a you know, it's kind of weird because New Mexico is a, such an odd place in that. You've got these big metropolitan areas and then a bunch of nothing. Well, you know, not a lot of people living in certain places. And and so I noticed that the journal does kind of do a lot more just Albuquerque, Santa Fe. Um, We we almost don't do anything on the east. not a whole lot on the west and then then the south side kind of ties in with the border things um uh so i think we've kind of closed 
up a little bit um, because we we've had to. But um, but I, that's again that goes back to what I was saying earlier in that you know news is a whole bunch of different things. You know it's not just the big news stories. What I wish you know I'm sure the journal editors won't care about this, but I've always thought that you know maybe we put too much wire stories in mm -hmm. national stories that you could get somewhere else. Um, uh, I know many times my column was was held because of a big breaking national story that I thought, oh my God, that's going to be 24 hours old by the paper comes out. You know, I mean, I've already read about that on on the New York Times website and 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 uh, I sometimes I will look and I'll see so many national stories that I've already read, you know, maybe use that news hole more for the littler stories. Now, sometimes it's hard to fill those holes because you just don't have enough reporters and they're busy working on other stuff. Um, but but I, I, I really would like to see a lot more local. And <clears throat> I think we do try to do as much of that as we can, mm -hmm. but it sometimes bumps off things off page one that maybe, maybe should have been on page one. Um, such like my column, you, said, you know, right. <laughs> I mean, it got to the point where I never knew what day my column was going to run <clears throat> because, um, you know, I mean, if there was a something going on in Washington, D.C., well, that might be more important than my story on a little kid who wanted to help the homeless, you know, and I get that and I understand that, but but I, I, I'd rather see more of a local balance, but that's just not how, I guess, the powers yeah. that be see it, you know, they feel like we need to be that paper <clears throat> that gives you all the news of all kinds. That's right. I like the way so you still say that's I think yeah. I, I disagreed a lot with some of the things. Mm -hmm. I like the way you say we referring to the journal like you're still working. I know I can't, <laughs> such a habit. Yes. <laughs> who, who I find myself doing that all the time. It's like, oh, we I mean the journal, you know. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Hey, who were the big influences for you early in your career? Like, you know, everyone's everyone has a hand up from somebody uh, if, when they start out. Who are the, who are those people for you? Well, he'll be very um, <clears throat> embarrassed, but one of my most favorite editors, and he was a great writer, is a great writer, is Phil Casaus, um, ah. who is now the editor at the Santa Fe New Mexican. They're very lucky to have him. He was, um, you know, he when he worked at the journal for many years and he did something like upfront, but it wasn't a column, but he did those kind of human feature stories for a while. And I would read those and I just loved how he wrote. I just thought he was so, such a great writer. And um, and then of course he moved to the, the Tribune and at, at finally at one point became my editor and then became the editor of the whole paper. And, and what was so great about him is he he understood the need for writers to have a voice and he encouraged that and nurtured that and and because and he is so supportive I mean here's a here's an editor who's so busy who takes the time I, I had had some sort of surgery or something and he comes to the hospital room with bags of yogurt and stuff and and then he goes out and gets school supplies for my kids because I couldn't go and and uh coolers full of food so that because i i couldn't shop because it was a hip thing and i couldn't move and and just 
you know, I, I would tell people we would walk through fire for that guy because he'd walk through fire for us, you know, and, and, and just that, that respect that he had for the written word was, was great. So he's one for sure. And, um, um, I had, you know, like national people, I loved Rick Bragg, um, and, uh, Connie, uh, Connie Schultz is one of my favorites. Um, there was somebody else I was going to mention, and I can't remember who it was. Um, I mean, I think I was really lucky to be at the Tribune because it really, it was a writer's paper. I mean, they believed in the creativity and just daring. John Temple was a great editor who also believed in, you know, let's try it. Let's give it a try. Let's do it. That You know, and sometimes it'd be crazy stuff, you know, but, but it was like, we were so scrappy and we, and brave and we tried these, these things. I used to love, um, Lynn Bartles, who was a longtime columnist at the Tribune, yes. who was hilarious. And she like knew everybody in town and, and, uh, she was always a great influence. And I used to love to sit near her because she, you could just hear her talking on the phone to all the people that would call her and, and I loved her easy going way to talk. She's sort of like the Molly Ivins of Albuquerque, I thought. Um, Molly Ivins was a, another person. Oh, there's my dog. Um, and then um, finally, there's a, a, a guy who I was actually the editor of uh, named Hank Stewart, um, who started as a, just, a, just a reporter, I guess. I was even intern, I think just a reporter. And, um, uh, he was one of the most amazing writers I've ever read. He was a, a finalist, I think twice for a Pulitzer. Um, once uh, with a story that I helped uh, edit, but it was all him. You didn't, you hardly had to edit him at all. Um, and, and sometimes when I've had, um, you know, like, I don't know how to start this column. I don't know. I'd, I'd sit down and I read some of Hank's old stuff you know, and it would just kind of gin up my mind and, and, and things like that. I, and, and uh, I just think he's just a lovely uh, writer, just creative and wonderful. And so I, I would say those are my, those are my big influences. Those are some Plus, names. I, when I was a kid, I read everything. When yeah. I was a kid, I was a voracious reader. You know, we had like a library in my house. My mom is really a big believer of that. My mom was a great influence. I mean, I think she wanted to be a writer. You know, I mean, I went to sleep at night. She had a little tiny portable uh, typewriter and I'd hear her typing at night. I don't know what the heck she was typing, but that lovely sound of typing was like my lullaby at night. And then she'd always have the news on, you know, like a radio news station all night radio. And, and that was also kind of a lullaby. And so I think she was a big influence on on me she'd enter my stories and writing contests all the time um, uh, That's so sweet. and you know I, she really nurtured that writing but i think it's because she wanted to be that and she right. she just couldn't or didn't yeah, yeah. diversity in papers is always a struggle as well as you know the business of newspapering nationally has a, has had a real dilemma attracting african americans and other folks into the business so to speak and having those kind of voices being heard and going back to the Tribune, you know, it's interesting to, to think about this. I hadn't thought about this in years. You know, there was Carrie Tyler at the time and myself, two African-Americans, you know, who had columns. There was 
uh, a number of Hispanic women who had columns. And I think the Tribune's strength was it was without trying and without crowing about it, a very diverse paper and really reflected mm -hmm. the greater community. And if there's any knock on the journal I hear sometimes, and, and I have to say also at Channel 5, you know, I have to lump us in as well, is we just don't have a lot of diversity or enough diversity that reflects the community enough. And that's part of the problem about attracting new readers to the newspaper. Does that make sense? Because I'm telling you, thinking back to the Tribune, I don't wanna make it, you know, throw roses, rose petals on it completely, but they, you know, Phil and others proved a point in their hiring. Someone has to hire these people, uh, these people of color. And he was not afraid to do that. And I think that was part of the, the paper's, you know, honest, it, it, it's strength. Do we need more of that in, in newspapering now? Are we getting there still? What's your, what's your sense of that? Well, I, I will say that at the Tribune, there was a great push because of the Scripps Howard. We were a Scripps Howard newspaper, and uh, um, there was actually a, a real push for diversity. Um, and we were just lucky that we kind of already had that going for us. And, right. um, and then the journal, I mean, there's quite a few. Um, I don't know about black, I'm trying to think in my head. Of course, I haven't been in the newsroom for two years because I of COVID, I've been working at home. But um, I, I, think, I think there are two, and I think that's a really important thing. There was that, if you might recall, a couple of years ago now, more, more than that now, there was a um, uh, editorial cartoon that got so much flack. Um, it was seen as being very racist. And, and I think um, it might've been helpful had someone in the editorial board been a minority and said, you know, that actually doesn't, you know, that doesn't hit right. Um, but you're right. It's, I, think, I think there are great attempts to try to reach out to minority um, uh, interns. You know, we get, we get interns, reporters, um, editors, uh, it's just a, um, a matter of, of finding them. You know? um, I mean, um, Martin Salazar is the city editor, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, he hails from Las Vegas, New Mexico. And, and so he's a, he's a tried and true Northern New Mexican. Well, he was, and now he's a tried and true Albuquerquean. Um, and I, so I think he, he brings some of that to the paper. Uh, Dan Herrera was my boss. Um, and uh, um, so I, I, I think Adrian Gomez, who's the arts and features guy. Um, so I think, we, I think we have that. I think for a while we didn't have that in the glass offices is what we call that. Um, but um, I, I do think that's changed a bit. Um, I always think it's good to have a, a, a reflection of what your community is like, because you sometimes don't see, you know, you have your own perspective and your own point of view that maybe someone that, uh, uh, a real quick story, when I was at the Tribune, we had a managing editor who was, came from wealthy Texas family, and they lived in uh, one of those exclusive uh, uh, developments in Santa Fe. She'd drive in every day and and I was a cop reporter then and, and uh, she she was arguing with me about coverage of a particular, it was something to do with ga gangs or something. And she said, I don't wanna see 
a story about a crime unless I can imagine it happening in my neighborhood. And I thought, what happens in your neighborhood? <laughs> like white collar crime? I mean, then, then I don't, what am I ever going to write? You know, and, and I just remember thinking that is so narrow minded because yeah. she was, you know, the martini and um, country club people. It's like, that's not most people's neighborhoods, especially in Albuquerque. You know, you're up in fancy schmancy. Uh, I forget what, where she lived exactly, but it was in the nice part of Santa Fe, exclusive gated community kind of thing. And, and, uh, and I remember thinking that is so not the right way to do this. So she and I locked horns a lot um, because I did, I disagreed. I said, you know, we need to hear about what's going on in the South Valley. We need to hear about, we need to hear about gang members. We need to hear about, you know, um, you know, the, the crime at your Smiths, you know, that sort of thing, you know, that's not in your backyard, but it's in mine, you know, right. so that's, right. that's why that diversity, I think. Just We've had a, such a nice long conversation. This is, I could go all, all afternoon. This is brilliant. <laughs> Crime's a difficulty, meaning it has to be covered. It has to be covered well and with a lot of detail. But then again, you get you, meaning here I go again, contributing what you were saying about we, but the newspaper ends up being blamed <laughs> for it, literally. And there seems to be this disconnect in the public about reporting on crime versus contributing to crime versus all, anything else they attribute to, to crime. And we are a crime-laden city. And I've got to imagine that was a difficult conversation inside editorial circles during your time at the Journal as well and Tribune. How do we go at crime and not just make it crime all the time in all the pages and have people sort of turned up. What was it was that difficult to balance during your time as, as an upfront columnist as well? Yeah, I, I think so. I think um, the the key is again the the understanding of the community. Yeah. What you know there and and I always believe that you should you should write about every homicide yeah. as much as you know, but that doesn't mean you splash it on the front page. I mean, that could mean it's it's a brief because you need to acknowledge that a life was taken. And I think that was one of the things that drove me nuts about this particular managing editor is, you know, a lot of the a lot of the homicides were young males doing stupid things <laughs> with drugs or uh, uh, gangs and stuff. And I thought, but it's still part of the community. Mm -hmm. But I wasn't saying, yeah, throw that on page one, you know. Um, uh, you know, I, I, because I, you don't really want to blow it out of proportion, and you don't want like the, we used to say this thing like pretend you're from Mars or you you're you just come from Mars and you're picking up the newspaper. What feeling are you going to get from reading the newspaper? Mm -hmm. And if all you have is crime, 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 well, you get a really bad perspective of what Albuquerque is. Granted, we have a lot of crime. It was a great. I mean, that sounds awful to say, but I mean, uh, as a cop reporter, this is a pretty good town to be in because you always have something to write about. Yeah. But you also, and what I tried to do as a cop reporter is, you know, yes, you write about those homicides, but you also write about the survivors. Um, you, you, um, you have some sensitivity to it. Um, and I think also, it, I mean, I always thought it was it was a good thing to write about 
sometimes the quote bad guys because I want to understand why they're bad. What happened to them? I I I always felt bad for one of my my colleagues who wrote this great article. He spent he like embedded himself with um, I forget what they were like Proud Boys or Oath Keepers or one of those kind of groups. He spent like a weekend and they were doing some sort of weird military exercise thing and and it to me it was a very enlightening eye opening um, uh, piece that he did. He got so much flack for that because it's like you're glorifying and and I, I thought he's not glorifying it. He actually he's kind of horror making you horror by the thought process of these people. Mm-hmm. And and I think if you know if you don't understand why people are the way they are, um, you know, we're gonna be in our little silos and we're never gonna really get what the problem is out there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I important to. I've written about criminals, you know. Um, I remember uh, um, Robin the Hood, a very notorious bank robber that I wrote about. Um, uh, and uh, because I wanted to understand who are you? You know, why do you do this nonsense? You know, and, and stuff. My whole thing with Terry Clark, the last guy to be executed in the state of New Mexico, I wanted to understand why did you do this horrible thing? Uh, you know, what can we learn from your, what you did, you know, or, or who you are, so we can nod that again. Um, so I think you've got to have a mix of that. I, 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 again, don't think you should always splash it on page one. Um, but I, but I do think, you know, it, it's just, you know, you got to report it, you just have yeah. to. It's a tough balance in a town like ours. It, it's not as if we're some coastal community with a big you know, yeah. sailing community where it's white collar crime, like you're saying, it, it's it's really right. close to the streets here. It's, it's just difficult because I have to ask, I'm so curious, some of your more, more memorable upfronts over the years, are there two or three that really stick out that had a tremendous feedback that maybe surprised you, either good or bad, or the ones that you're really proud of that you can look back on and say, you know what, I'm awfully glad I did that story. Um, I think the the one that people must remember me uh, by was the one I did on my son when he died mm-hmm. um, in 2017. And um, uh, people mostly think that must have been a really hard one to write. And in, in, in yes, it was. And no, it wasn't because it was really cathartic for me to, I, I felt so lucky. I had a place to put my grief you know Mm. because i knew and i know there are lots of parents out there like me who are just befuddled and shocked that their child fell into this and and i also wanted to make sure people understood that you know you can be a great parent you can give your kid the best of everything and sometimes things still go wrong Mm -hmm. you know and and uh i've met so many parents uh, as a re- result of that column, um, that um, that I know that that um, opioid opioid crisis affects all walks, mm-hmm. um, and I and I want and and to that end, the very first, I think one of the the ones that I thought was really important column that I did happened years before then, with a woman named Georgia, who. Uh, her son had died uh, 
of complications of heroin use. Um, and it, I remember it was really eye-opening to me because I had the stereotype of a heroin addict, you know, like some, you know, grungy street person, bad guy. Um, her son looked like John F. Kennedy Jr. and was this wonderful guy, you know, sent his mother flowers and, you know, loved shoes. He had every kind of Nike shoe there was and, and, and stuff like that. Just a really good family, um, upper middle class, living in the El Dorado High School neighborhood. Um, he went to El Dorado High School and um, I came to her house and we chatted for hours and hours. Um, and I, and I, that's when I learned that um, a, a lot of kids at heroin, at, at heroin, at, at El Dorado were dying of heroin overdoses. Mm. That, that heroin had crossed over into a whole new group of kids. And the kids didn't understand that they thought if they just, um, uh, you know, chase the dragon, you know, like that you, you, you smoke it, I mean, you, you inhale it, um, that wouldn't make you addicted and you wouldn't die from that. But you, <laughs> and it does addict you. And, and I, I was so amazed to find out that all these upper middle class kids from, from good families, you know, high school kids, they, you know, she was saying that there wasn't a week that went by, she wasn't going to somebody's funeral. And, and so I, I wrote that piece and, um, and then suddenly I started hearing from all these other parents, you know, who had similar stories. Um, uh, the, the, the gentleman who used to own uh, Scalos, very well off family at the time, at least. And his daughter who went, you know, was a beautiful, you know, fancy sports car, you know, all the money in the world. She died of a heroin overdose, you know, and, and, and I think that's when we started realizing the problem that we had. And I, I, I like to think that it was important to break that ground and let people know, look, people, we're losing our kids. We're losing your neighbor. You know, it's not just these, you know, homeless street people doing drugs. It's, you know, it, it's uh, the son of a police officer. It's, you know, the, you know, it, it's, and, and I, and to me, those were that, those are probably the most important stories I've ever done, probably. Mm -hmm. um, also stories on suicide. Um, wow. I've always tried to um, lose the stigma of that. And, and I know sometimes some of the people think, no, there'll be copycats and stuff. And it's like, so you gotta be really careful in how you write those. Um, but um, there was a, a time where I wrote about a woman whose child, I mean, I think her child was like nine years old, killed herself mm. on Mother's Day. Oh, wow. and, it, and it's like, I can't even imagine. And, and her story was so, I mean, it just, your heart stopped when, you were, uh, when I was talking with her. And years later, she called she struggled really hard with the death of her daughters, you can imagine. And, and, and she was in crisis and she called me. Um, and well, I, I, and so I called um, uh, people that I had written who, who ran a, a support group for uh, survivors of suicide, whose family died of suicide. 
and I, it was really hard because we didn't know where she was, you know, um, I just had her phone number and she wouldn't say where she wasn't. It was this detective kind of thing, me trying to give out information, trying to reach her, trying to get these people involved and, and they took over from there and we, we saved her, I think that night. Um, but, but to have someone contact, uh, a reporter who did your story, um, two things to me is that was quite amazing to me but number two how how kind of sad that the only person you think you can reach out to is 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 a journalist you know mm -hmm. but you know maybe that's not a bad thing because i had the resources i knew who to call to help her right. um so so when things like that happen um it just kind of takes my breath away to think you know you can help the journalism can be can help people you can help people by writing a story that matters to to somebody and and that has been probably the best reward that i've had is just those kinds of stories that um you know save a life or or um uh, you know, we, we got a job, we had a homeless woman who, well, she wasn't homeless. She was living in a trailer up here in the mountains and it was frigid temperatures, no heat, nothing. She wouldn't go into a shelter because she had dogs, old dogs. And uh, uh, through the story, we were able to find a um, job for her working at a um, animal um, rescue group where she was, she lived on the property, taking care of all these animals animal sanctuary up in Santa Fe. And, um, and it was just wonderful that, you know, something like that could happen for this lady. Um, and, and, you know, so when, when you see a result like that, you're just, just you know, you know, just really thrilled that, that you can do that. I can imagine. You know, you've seen a lot of changes in our city over the time, your time as at the Tribune and of course at the Journal, a long time at the Journal. I'm, I'm curious where you see the city right now, not so much where it's headed, but just sort of where are we now? It seems like we're on the precipice of something. I'm not quite sure what it is. It could be good. It could be bad <laughs> the way things are going, but it's something. And it just seems like we're trying to get to a new level of somewhere. I don't even, the question is kind of bizarre, but I, I'm just kind of curious where you see the city right now in its entirety in our arc, you know, where, where are we headed as, as from your point of view as, as a longtime watcher of Albuquerque? Well, you know, actually one of the things that I've, I've repeatedly told folks is a lot of things aren't, haven't changed. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I don't know how many, I think probably every day, probably every day on social media, I read someone that says, um, this city is getting worse by the minute, you know, like, like, uh, cause it's another crime or something like that, you know, another shooting, another, this, another, that, you know, the, you know, yeah, I'm going to move out of this city. I'm so glad I'm leaving. And, you know, you know, I, I left years ago. I'm so glad. I think, you know, we have all Albuquerque's always been a pretty city since I was in high school, you know, um, we, we have always been, we've always struggled with that sort of thing. Um, uh, I don't see that that's worse, um, which leads me to also say, why are we still doing that? 
why are we still you know so i don't think we're worse mm -hmm. but i also think we're not better mm -hmm. um i what i like though um people may disagree but um i've seen so many uh administrations of apd i really like this one because they feel more open mm -hmm. at least to me i think the previous one that was part of the problem you know was so closed up didn't want to tell anybody anything and i think that's where we had a lot of our our problems which led to our consent decree with the department of justice um uh when you close yourself up like that as an as a public agency i think that causes a lot of problems you know because then we can't be the watchdogs the public can't know what's happening and bad things are happening with people that probably shouldn't be cops um so so i i like uh, chief medina and i wish him well i i have seen I, i'm very perplexed with the homeless situation i don't know what the solution is for that um i've seen a lot more of it than i have ever seen um and i think part of it is because maybe it was more in certain parts of town so you didn't yeah. see it everywhere as much as you do now yeah and i and i i ponder what the answer is and i admire the people that try really hard to come up with those solutions and to to help those folks but i mean i've sat around on street corners with some of those folks and they've some of them have a they've got a gig they've got a gig going you know i mean they make pretty good money standing out there you know and and so why do they want to go to a shelter mm -hmm. that is probably not a good thing you know i mean um but what do you do you know you can't force them to go to a shelter right. um and i don't know that i think you should just sweep away all their um tents so i i worry about that a little bit um i just worry that people don't realize the greatness of albuquerque because they're so focused on the negative acts aspects of albuquerque um and you know those cannot be denied there's a lot of blight i drive on east central when i come into town i drive down east central just because i like to to see things sure. you don't see as much on the freeways and and um and i just think what is happening in this part this is old route 66 this is the mother load you know mother road i mean um uh we need to do something about that and 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 i I feel like maybe some of that's happening on the west side more than the east. So I'd like to see some changes there. Um, um, you know, and I, 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 I think it's real easy for people to, you know, be angry and um, blame the mayor for everything um, or blame the governor for everything. And I think that's so counterproductive, you know, I mean, uh, sometimes people blame the, the the governor for something and i'll say explain exactly how she's involved in this this particular thing right. you know and and um and, and of course they never respond to me um i think that goes back again to understanding how government works you know and 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 did you even vote you know do you know did you even read who this person was that you were electing you know and and um you know, or were you were you uh, swayed by the shiny object aspect? You know, of, of someone with a big smile and used to see on television as a 
weather guy. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I mean, um, I feel like we're not doing our, our own duty to make the city better if all we're doing is complaining and complaining about the wrong people sometimes. So, so I don't know. I mean, I, I, I've always had a mixed bag about Albuquerque. I've lived in great cities across the country from Portland, Oregon, Boulder, Colorado, um, uh, Sanbornville, New Hampshire, San Diego, Tucson. So I've seen a bunch of varieties of, of places and, and stuff like that. And I would say Albuquerque is one of the rougher cities I've lived in but it's home and mm -hmm. it's uh, unique and and I wouldn't move from it um and I I I wish people would would kind of help bring that uniqueness closer to the fore mm -hmm. and uh quit kvetching so much <laughs> yeah um, but kvetching in a productive way you know sure, sure. exactly there's ways to get your points across at a city council meeting versus a bar. You know what I mean? So it, it's yeah, right. You know I mean? Or on Facebook. <laughs> Thank you. Even better said. Even better said. Um, <laughs> hey, what's next for you? And my last question: Any thoughts? If if a national syndicator ever came to you and said, "You know what? We've been watching you for a lot of years. We think like your thing would work for us in a national national scale. Would you would you entertain an offer like that?" Well, then. I've had all these years to do that. Right. <laughs> I haven't done it yet. Um, uh, so I don't know if I'm expecting that to happen. Um, like, like I sort of mentioned earlier, um, I just, uh, I'm just in, in, enjoying the nothingness of now. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds kind of weird, but it's, I like to sit I'm where I'm sitting right now. I'm looking at my back, my window into the back, my back deck, which looks onto the national forest. I mean, there's nothing between me and the forest. And I'm watching these blue jays eating the peanuts that I put out every morning. And, and, um, and, and it's just fun. And there's squirrels and there's deer and, and, and um, I'm listening more to music. I mean, when I was working, my television was on 24 seven always to the news mm -hmm. and i'm kind of easing away from that just a bit i mean when i can i still read all the news but um i'm enjoying that right now but at some point probably i will want to write again i i'm hoping to do more articles for new mexico magazine mm. uh, maybe other publications like that um if I if I was lucky enough to get like a Connie Schultz type column, I think she runs once a week. Yeah, that could be kind of nice, but I'm not expecting that because how do I do that nationally when my thing is local? Right. You know, I mean, that's the thing. It's like I I do local. I do people living in this community. So how would I make that national? So I, I don't know that I would ever do that. Yeah. Um, People keep asking about the book. That's not really on my radar at this point in time. Um, the reason I did that other book is because I got paid for doing it. And I didn't really, you know, if it sells one copy or a hundred, it doesn't matter to me because, because I'm already paid and I don't get it. Anything, any profits go to uh, Albuquerque, one, one Albuquerque foundation. 
So, so that's not a thing, but if you write another kind of book, the, the regular kind, then I would be, you know, worried about sales and stuff. And I don't mm -hmm. want to worry about sales. Um, I would like to maybe volunteer with different agencies. I've, I've written about so many great agencies doing great things from animal care to, um, uh, women's rights to um, rape crisis, all of that. And maybe at some point I can be of some use to one of those groups. Um, you know, I, 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 one of the things I've loved to do is talk to people and, you know, hear their painful experiences. I'm not a therapist by any stretch of the imagination, but sometimes therapy is simply listening to people and asking a few questions now and then. Yeah. Um, maybe there's something I can do with that. I don't know. Um, That's an interesting thought, yeah. You know, cause I, I, I do kind of, I do kind of, kind of miss that. I still am getting people calling me every day uh, with stories and it's like, well, I don't really do that anymore. But it loved, sometimes it's stories that I have done that have updates. And it's like, oh shoot, I want to write that, you know? and um, so I have to pass that on to the city desk and see if they'll write about it. Um, you know, for example, I did a, a story, a couple of stories on a couple who got married during COVID while he was dying from COVID in the hospital. And uh, the wedding was her with, her with their friends in the parking lot of the hospital and him in intensive care unit. They're looking at an iPad. And then he gets out and his lungs are just trashed because of COVID. And, um, but she, you know, she's like, hey, for better, or for worse. Well, he um, just underwent a lung transplant. And uh, man, he sounds like a whole new guy. Wow. And so it's a happy, so far story. Um, uh, I couldn't believe how strong his voice was after hearing him barely able to talk. And um, that just happened a week ago, I think, a couple of weeks ago. And it's like, oh, I, I wanted to write that story. <laughs> and then yesterday, uh, I'd, done a, I'd done several stories about a, a neighborhood that was up in arms because um, someone wanted to put a crematorium in their midst um, down in the North Valley because there's one, there's an interesting street that's very industrial, but it's surrounded by neighbors. Um, so yes, it, that street is zoned, but I mean, there's like a trailer park right behind it and there's this and there's that. It's downwind or upwind, whatever, of the Balloon Fiesta uh, Park. Um, and and uh, they, this neighborhood vowed to fight. And I, I love those scrappy neighbors who really try to fight city hall, beat city hall. And well, they beat city hall. And that just happened yesterday. Mm -hmm. um, and it's like, oh, I want to write that story. <laughs> mm -hmm. So it's kind of hard letting go of those stories where I've already been invested. Um, but maybe there's something place for me, maybe a blog, maybe something like that. I don't know. I thought Podcasts about that. Big right too. now, certainly. I mean, people. Podcast. I've, I've often thought when I listen to you on with TJ on on KOB, I always thought Jolene would make a great radio host. This is I, I, I've always thought that about you that yep. that that back and forth you would do well with, you know, with 
not not the crazy callers. I'm not talking about that on a conservative. <laughs> but you know, there's a way to carve that out. And there's a lot of there's a lot of examples out there across the country of folks who have transitioned from newspapering mm -hmm. to radio and have that be an interesting or even KUNM, even you know, for a, a safe spot like that too. But podcasts could be interesting. I think folks would like to hear from you and your I've, thoughts. I mean, I've, I've heard some good podcasts, and I think, God, yeah. you know that. I don't even know if I could do that, but I mean that you know that is that is a that is a thought. So I'm I mean I, I may reappear. I don't I don't know that I I want to disappear uh, from the landscape completely, mm -hmm. um, just for a little while, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> just to relax a little bit. Get Who my... can blame you? I mean, after all, <laughs> after all done. Oh man. Jolene Gutierrez Kruger, I can't thank you enough for spending this amount of time. I told the guys, I said, I'm going to go long here because we have a lot to talk about. <laughs> so we could go even longer. And I would, I would put the offer out there too. If there was ever a notion to even do, not something regular, but if there was a way that you and I wanted to do something like what we're doing right here on some things you're observing out there in the, in the city or East Mountains or whatever the case may be, I'll leave that as an open offer. Uh, to think Thank about you. as okay. the weeks go by because your voice is important and it's been important here in Albuquerque for a long time and we would be at a loss to have it completely gone that would be a difficulty I think for a lot of folks and you know opportunities are what they are you never know what the plan's going to be from you know who so something well, and that's true I mean as I tell people the universe has always been really good to me there have been times when I'm like I don't know and then the universe opens the door and you just got to right. walk through. That's and right. so I'm, I'm open, I'm open to whatever the universe says I'm supposed to be doing next. So yep. that's um, perfect. The universe yeah. is listening right now. So that the answer is coming. <laughs> <laughs> Jolene, thank you for spending so much time. Thanks to your pup. You're welcome. <laughs> Love that too. But I did from the community. I want to say congratulations on a professional life. Well-lived. Uh, I think you. you can look Thank back you. and absolutely be proud of what you've contributed to this metropolitan area. You didn't phone it in every <laughs> week. You know what I mean? You did, You leaned into it every column. I never had the sense, well, that was a toss off. Never, not one time ever. And so for the community, I, I say thank you. And hopefully we can speak soon about all of this as well, like I proposed just a little bit ago. So absolutely. Okay. All righty. <laughs> Got it. All right, that'll do it for this episode of the podcast for New Mexico in Focus, the public affairs show at New Mexico PBS here in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I'm your host, Kevin McDonald, an executive producer here. We thank you so much for tuning in, and we encourage you to follow us on social media throughout the week for more great content and to give us suggestions of things you want us to be talking about or covering on the show. We love those suggestions and those tips and that feedback. So whether it's YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just follow us at NM in Focus or New Mexico in Focus. You can find us either way and let us know what you're thinking about. We really do love to have those conversations with you and incorporate that into future episodes. But for now, we're going to get to work on everything in store for this week. And we'll be back with much more content on Friday. As always, thanks for listening. Stay safe. Stay healthy. <laughs>